Welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me podcast. I'm your host, Linda Cherry, and today I'm really excited to be joined by our co-host, Sam Castor, the author of Zion Rising. Sam, thanks so much for joining me today as we discuss this enormous amount of material in Genesis uh, 42 through 50. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so excited to be able to do this in an interactive mode. It's so much more fun to be able to have dialogue. Yes, and I hope that our viewers really enjoy it too. In fact, we welcome some feedback if they do. We'd like to know how they like it. So today's story is the reunion of Joseph with his brothers in Egypt. Uh, last week, we left off with him in, in uh, Egypt, and the Pharaoh had just appointed him to be the steward over all of the Egyptian resources and uh, and pretty exciting time for Joseph. But now we're going to find out about what happens with Joseph's family and his brothers. So why don't you lead us off? Thank you. And I, I'm excited to do this with you too, Linda, just because there's so much power in this, this story as we understand how God works with us to try and bring us back together. And you have such a depth of knowledge on this. So I'm going to um, highlight some of the story, but I I really hope that you add a lot of color and value too, because I, I know you have a book that just came out called The Redemption of the Bride. God's redeeming love for his covenant people. And I feel like there's so much of that in this, that he's redeeming us and he's showing us how much he loves us. And even though we make mistakes or do stupid things, he's working with us to bring us back. So, so <clears throat> yes, we, we um, last week we talked about how Joseph had been able to turn that adversity and that affliction of being sold into Egypt into this, this bounty for him and his family. And how he's been given uh, you know, prosperity by uh, being able to serve in Pharaoh's house. And it's interesting because the Lord uses these world events to try and help bring things back together. I love how Christ is like, is, he's the grand reconciler. He, like, he's trying to bring things back together and regather those things that are at war. Or you know, bring peace to those things that, are, that have tension with each other. And so in Genesis 42 there's a famine that hits the entire area that Joseph had had dreams about and prophesied about. And Jacob and his family are impacted by the famine, which is interesting because as you read about Abraham and Isaac, those difficulties don't seem to arise with the same fierceness that comes with this scenario. And so it's almost as if the Lord is saying, yeah, you guys did wrong by Joseph. I'm going to use some world events to, to fix this. And so Jacob sends his sons, all of them, except for Benjamin, who's Joseph's brother, down to Egypt to buy corn in Egypt because he knows there's bounty there and they're, they're starving. And so Joseph ends up seeing his brothers once they get to, to Egypt. And it's interesting as well because the scriptures give you little clues about how he hides himself from them. He's obviously uh, dressed differently than uh, as an officer in Pharaoh's court. He also uses an interpreter acting the, the, the true part of being um, an officer of Pharaoh's court and doesn't reveal himself, but he, he recognizes them. He sees that they're his brothers. And as they come to him in verse uh, for, uh, for chapter 42, verse, verse nine, they actually bow down to him and seek that, uh, that food from him humbly. And so I think this is a moment where Joseph starts to recognize his brothers maybe have changed in the, in the course of events since since their betrayal of him. Did you want to add something? Well, I think it's just so interesting because it's so much in the fulfillment of the dream that he'd had when he was a teenager about them bowing to him. And I think it also says a lot about Joseph at that moment that he still is keeping quiet. You know, we don't have this sense that he's sort of um, 
you know, I kind of told you so or whatever, uh, that the sense that for him, it's almost like he has a reverent feeling about it. Yeah, and, yeah there's no gloating. Exactly. And I think it's also really interesting in terms of how all the fighting had been about the birthright and, and the sense that they had that this coat that Joseph had somehow had this sort of mystical power. Um, and yet now the coat's destroyed, but Joseph still now has that birthright. He still has all of that prosperity. As you mentioned, in Egypt, he still gained all that prosperity that had been promised to him, but the Lord gave it to him. Yeah, and it's interesting too because when the when the brothers come to him, he says, "Hey, you're spies. You're here to see the the nakedness of the land." And I, and to me, that's almost as if he's. I don't know if it's a something that we just miss because it's translated into English, or if it's something that's a disconnect between the Hebrew and the Egyptian that was being spoken. But the the term he says it three times, which is symbolic. But the term nakedness, where he's suggesting, hey, you're coming to see the nakedness of the land or the openness, or you're trying to you know, basically steal things. I wonder if he's trying to drop hints to them. Like he wants to keep himself hidden, but he's also suggesting, just like you took that cloak away from me and made me naked and, you know, made me bare, that there's there's this, that that, that type of hint dropping. I, I'm curious. Oh, I love that. I love that insight. I never thought of that. That's awesome. Oh, I love it. it. It's curious, isn't it? Because you just how hard would it be to not either go to the gloating, like you say, or go to a place of, Hey, let me tell, let me have my messengers go tell them. And so they start to be fearful of me. He, he is doing everything he can to try and see if there's a way to reconnect with them truthfully. And, and, and he wants to trust them. He really wants yeah. to trust them. Yeah. And so it, it's almost like they, both of them have been on their own journeys because some some scholars I've read have also suggested that Joseph was a little arrogant after his dreams. And so he he also had been humbled by his own experiences, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So they end up accusing him of being, or he, he accuses his brothers of being spies. They, they explain, no, we're just here to get food repeatedly. Um, and he, they also say, hey, to tell you, to show you that we're telling the truth, uh, we're we're all brothers of one father, and there are two other brothers. One who's who's died or is no longer, and then another one that's left back with our father. And Joseph ends up uh, continuing to press on them, and then he puts them into the ward for three days, meaning into prison. In verse seventeen, and I thought I, I thought that was interesting, because you you think in these short in these short chapters you think this kind of happens quickly, but there's a lot of time. <laughs> that happens well and the interesting thing is that in essence they put him into prison yeah and 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 in a way i mean he's just testing them here from the beginning how are they going to behave when they're put in prison and actually he's impressed because yeah. right away they recognize and say oh these things are happening to us and they're talking amongst themselves these things are happening to us because of what we did so long ago so absolutely, absolutely. ruben even pipes up and says hey this is because of the blood right later on. And yeah, there's the blood that we took from our brother. It's also interesting that um, how Christ was in prison three days before he resurrected. That same kind, there's a lot of parallels. And I love that you, I know you, you've, uh, in our other discussions about this, you've highlighted that, that there's so much uh, parallelism between uh, jo Joseph and Christ himself. And I hope we can get into that uh, in this discussion today. So, <clears throat> One of the brothers um, must stay in prison and the others are allowed to go free is what Joseph says to them. And this is where the brothers start to recognize their guilt. They start to say in verse 21, 
hey, this is because of the blood that we spilled um, of our younger brother. And Reuben suggests that that blood is now required of them in verse 22. And um, Joseph starts to see the remorse and he himself feels remorse. And he, he goes away and weeps for his brothers and wants to be with them. And to me, that's just an, another example of how we all want to really be together. We, we all want to be reunited in Christ. We yearn for it. And these divisions and this contention, all the family drama that pops up. I, I come up from a very large family. Families have drama. Right? People step on each other's toes. But in our hearts, we all want to be connected, even if we've been wrong. And so I love that. And you know, Sam, I have to tell you that one of the reasons I specifically asked you to join me with this is because I felt your love of Zion and the principles of Zion were so evident in this story. And I just knew you would have so much to kind of tie in with that because when you speak about brothers arguing and fighting, and we, we have lots of stories in the scriptures and lots of stories in our own homes about that. The whole point at the end of time is that we are all brothers and sisters. We are all one family. And that sense of Zion, of uniting ourselves with that forgiveness and love is so important. I knew you'd have a lot to add about that. Oh, thank you. You know, I couldn't help but cross-reference because like, we'll get to it again later, but um, when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers and they weep and fall on each other's necks, it's a direct reference to what happens in Moses 7 when we're all reunited as, yeah, as Zion. I love that. So thank you. So um, so Simeon um, decided, is bound and stays back and the other brothers are able to go back to their father. And um, it's interesting because Joseph even though he had received money from them for the food and they're taking food away with them back to their father because Joseph doesn't want his, fa his father to go hungry. Um, Joseph returns the money into their bags without telling him. And um, Reuben and the brothers come back and they actually start to realize one of the brothers discovered the money in the bags. And then when they get back to the father, they discover all of them got their money back and they're terrified because they're afraid that, that Pharaoh is going to blame them for, for stealing. And, it's a fulfillment of Joseph's warning that they're there just to act as spies. And it's interesting because Jacob, Jacob mourns. He, I, you can tell he's, he has so much sorrow in his soul over what has happened with Joseph. And that's why he's so protective of Benjamin. And there, there are, it does look like there are, I mean, there, there clearly are family favorites in this, these relationships. And it, it's been hard for some of these these brothers to deal with those family favorites and, and understanding that their father does love Joseph and love Benjamin more. That's a, that's a tension point throughout all of this. Mm -hmm. And so when they come back to jo uh, to Jacob or Israel and they say, Hey, our one brother's back and we have to, we have to bring the other brother back. If we want to go back, we have to bring Benjamin back with us. He, he laments and he's very sorrowful about that. It's very stressful for him. And Reuben even offers his own children to Jacob if he doesn't return again with Benjamin. But um, Israel says, or Jacob says, nope, you're not going. Sorry, we're staying here. And, and in fact, he goes later and he says, why did you even tell this guy about, about your other brother? And I think yeah. it's really interesting, like when we talk about what it was like for Jacob to not have Simeon come back, that to recognize that at this point, all of the brothers now have families. They have wives and children who also have to have some great anxiety and distress over the fact that husband and dad are not coming back home to them. That's so true. And there's also something evident that there's been an impact in these families with what happened with, uh, with uh, 
Abraham and Isaac, for Reuben to offer up his, to his two of his sons. There's something about this idea that there does need to be sacrifice. There does need to be giving. There does need to be surrender of posterity back to, to, to heaven. That, that's something that is a tension point here as well, because they, it's almost like they want an atonement, but they keep thinking that the atonement will come through them yeah. instead of through Christ, right? instead of through, through the atonement of the Savior. And so when I write it, you know, it's very similar to like what happens with Lot back in Genesis when he offers his daughters. It's like, why are you doing that? <laughs> why are you offering up your children? Uh, and that it's a very curious thing to me. I, I know we don't, we can, probably can't fully understand it with our current uh, modern day mindsets, but it's a historical point that, that shows that these people are willing to, to sacrifice their own children if they can make sure that they're doing what's right. And it's a, I don't know how right it is and I don't know how wrong it is. It's, it's something very curious to me. Yeah, it's really interesting that you point that out because the Israelites are entrapped with that idea throughout their history. In fact, at some point, um, uh, they under King Manasseh, the Lord chides them because he offers up his son to the false god Molech. So I think that all of the nations around them were literally going through with the uh, offering their children up to the false gods, just as it happened with Abraham at the beginning with Elkanah, and that it, it is a constant snare to the, to the Israelites to kind of divide the truth. And that's what's so interesting about uh, Satan is that he will teach concepts that are so close and yet counterfeit, that God the Father is giving his son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for all of us. And then they have all the false gods teaching that offer up your child and you're going to get special privileges as a result it's it's really a dreadfully sad thing it is it is and, it, and how often do we sacrifice things that we shouldn't sacrifice mm -hmm. how often do we do we place priority on um on our own false images or our, our, our false ideologies at this at the detriment of our of our children it's like that um quote i think it was president benton that said that no no success in the world compensates for failure in the home it's that same idea right our little children, our, those relationships we have in families, it's the most precious, important thing we have as parents. It's, it's the most uh, consistent with us becoming like our heavenly parents. So I love you I saying that. Yeah, I love that. I mean, Abraham's blessing was that all the families of the earth would be blessed because of the priesthood in his family. And yet, mm -hmm. as, as your example about Lot, the worst thing that could happen to us is to lose our families. Yes. Yes, very, it's very sad. And it's beautiful that, that Christ's exercise here is to bring us all back, to, to save all of us that are willing to receive him. So, so there's some time that passes, right? So <clears throat> all the brothers come back. Jacob says, nope, not letting you go back. I'm keeping Benjamin. If Benjamin leaves, he's the only one left of my, my wonderful wife. I've already lost his other brother. You're not going. And then the famine continues to wax stronger and, and more sore. And finally they're like, Hey, we better go back to Egypt. <laughs> and Jacob says, go back to Egypt, but you're not taking Benjamin. And the brothers press upon him or his sons press upon him and say, no, if you don't let us take Benjamin, there's no way we're going to be able to return. We will die. We'll be killed. And so Jacob asks, like you said, he says, well, why did you even tell him about Benjamin? Come on guys, use, use some, some uh, confidentiality here, <laughs> you know, protect my most precious treasure. And then um, Judah, and this is beautiful, and I love how we've talked about this before, and you've, you've mentioned the relationship between Judah and Ephraim starts to become more poignant here and more special 
Judah promises to be a surety for Benjamin. He's, he basically says, no, I, I will ensure, I, I will uh, be, be a sacrifice for Benjamin. And that's in uh, chapter 43, verse nine. And that's what calms Israel down. That's what allows uh, um, him to, to let go. And he says, you know what, if I end up remor remorsing the, or uh, sorrowing over this or, or having sorrow over this, then I, I, I will, but I understand if we don't go get the food, we're going to die. So they, they take double the money at the insistence of Jacob because they're worried that um, if they don't pay back what they had got the first time, plus new money for the new food, that um, that will cause trouble with, with Pharaoh. And they come back to Egypt with Benjamin. And I, I, I can't help but get a sense that Benjamin has been sheltered probably more than he wanted to be. <laughs> but I also love how much the brothers' attitudes have changed because now they do know, just like Joseph had been the favorite, they know Benjamin's the favorite. Yeah. But their whole attitudes have changed. But perhaps that came with age and maturity as well. But they are so protective of Benjamin that, as you said, you get the sense the entire family is just hovering, hovering around him to keep him safe. And it's all because they love their father. Yeah. Which it's beautiful that those those degrees of love that we get to learn where it's not just about loving ourselves but loving others and loving God. It's again a grand symbolism of how God's asking us to to circle around His children. All of us are precious to Him down here below. So they end up back in Pharaoh's court, and they're brought almost immediately into Joseph's house. He he sees them. He releases Samian, brings them into his house, washes their feet, which is again. Uh, something that Abraham did with the angels that visited him, Lot did with the angels that visited him. So there's this, this sacredness to the uh, almost the reverence of the Abrahamic covenant that you're going to take care of strangers, lest they be angels unawares, right? There's right. this idea of reverence. Right. And, and the brothers are brought into his house, their feet are washed and they're invited to dinner. And I found it interesting too, that Joseph gives Benjamin five times <laughs> the mess or food uh, of his other brothers and he and he sees him and he it's interesting it says his bowels yearn for him and his whole being sees his brother he's been alone for so long and he he can't help but control you know he can't control his emotions he leaves and, and weeps and <clears throat> that yearning for to be connected i think is this the same thing it's, it's actually in some ways it's what causes our pain sometimes because we want to be connected and we we interfere with each other when we let those expectations bump into each other right when we're when we're trying to be to a match with each other instead of just loving each other and supporting each other and so they have this interaction and joseph um he sees his brothers bow down to him again in genesis 43 verse 26 which is again fulfillment of the prophecy and joseph asks about his father he wants to know how his dad is doing and his, his brothers say he's okay. And that this is when Joseph leaves the room and weeps after seeing Benjamin. And then this time, jo Judah, who had uh, the original plan to sell Joseph um, to the slave traders, he offers himself up for Benjamin's safety. And I, I think it's beautiful that both Reuben and Judah, who had betrayed Joseph, who had been dishonorable many, many years before, are now the ones that are trying to make some type of atonement or trying to repent and feel the change of heart. And it's, it's still this awesome commitment that they have to protecting their family members and helping their father. So it's beautiful. So I then, have to, I'm ahead. sorry. 
I'm no, sorry. I have to admit that's one of my favorite parts of this story is that, yeah. uh, you know, that while we see the frailties of human beings, that we also see how they can change. And, right. um, and I can't help but feel that the love that Joseph felt for them had to be really increased specifically towards uh, Reuben and Judah to see them behaving in this way. And, and um, no, I feel like this uh, terrible breach in the brotherhood had been healed specifically because of those two coming forward. You can see Joseph's heart soften even more. Mm -hmm. he, he wants to let them know. And so he, he instructs his servants in, in chapter 44, and this is verses one through 34. He instructs his servants to put the money back into their sacks again. And, uh, and he also earlier, and I forgot to mention this earlier, um, they, they actually come to him. The brothers come to Joseph and say, Hey, you, this was an oversight. You, you didn't give us the money or you didn't keep the money that we gave you for the food. We found it in our bags. And it's interesting because this also happens regularly throughout these Joseph time and time again says that he is a believer in God, even though he's in Pharaoh's court. He says, I'm a believer in God. I'm going to give you this stuff. Oh, no, your God is the one that gave you the money. No, your God is the one that's going to, you know, help deliver your brother. Like that, even though he's like number one in Pharaoh's court, he, he keeps pointing to the God of Abraham instead of the God of Pharaoh. And I, I can't help but wonder about this because <clears throat> he's in such a powerful position. You'd think that all the people there would expect him to be extremely fiercely loyal to Pharaoh. But Joseph is just true to who he really is. It's a really beautiful testament yeah. of, of his consistency. I love that. Uh, a lot of uh, scholars think that during Joseph's uh, reign here as second to Pharaoh was during the time of the Hyksos kings, sometimes mm -hmm. called the shepherd kings. And uh, there's a lot of uh, archaeological evidence that seems to indicate that there were two periods of time when the Egyptians did believe in one God, and that this may be one of those times, and that Joseph may have had more influence over Pharaoh and the religion than um, would be thought uh, when we think about Egypt's long history of idol worship. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's very, that, I didn't know that's beautiful, especially you think that would be obvious or, or natural, because of his dreams, because he's now saved Egypt. He's helped them, you know, fill up their storehouses before the famines. And um, in, in my studies of Egypt, I've also found that obviously the, the, the parallels between the true religion and the Egyptian counterfeit, there's a, there's a lot of uh, parallels or a lot of uh, consistency in that messaging. And that's so important for us to realize when we're looking at these histories, um, for us to recognize that Egypt is also a holy land. I've had the opportunity, I'm a tour guide, um, as well as a few other things, and I've had the opportunity of taking groups to Egypt. And um, obviously, the Savior was sent in his youth to Egypt. Abraham goes down to Egypt. Here we have Joseph in Egypt. And that um, this incredible connection uh, throughout the scriptures of that Egypt's role with Israel. And um, again, when we talk about the brothers, starting with Abraham and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and all of the family of Abraham, uh, go, and uh, then Noah's uh, son, Ham, and Egyptus, who found and formed Egypt. And 
as we read in the book of Abraham, that from the beginning, they were trying to pattern their priesthood after the correct priesthood. And so it is kind of chilling, to be honest with you, uh, particularly like at the temple of Karnak, there is a ceremony and a, a temple initiation endowment ceremony carved on the side of the wall in Karnak that uh, could look fairly familiar to some members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today. So, um, so yes, you can't help but feel actually the Egyptians kind of yearning for that truth. And that could be why, you know, Nibley points out that Abraham had an impact on his Pharaoh when he was down there. And, and then that Joseph had an impact on the, on this Pharaoh, but sadly, um, it later, the Egyptian dynasties, uh, be, abhorred this Hyksos dynasty and, and chased them out and, and all of the gods were brought back into Egypt. But it's an interesting connection and an interesting story. I agree. You know, I had the, I had the pleasure and a unique opportunity to interact with um, several Egyptians um, in my professional career. Um, some very notable ones in, in particular, there's an individual um, with the last name, um, his name's Naguib Sawari. He's um, one of the wealthiest people on the planet. Owns um, a, a bunch of telecoms in that region. And he's actually the founder of the Freedom Party in Egypt, which is trying to give, uh, he baked it into their constitution, the ability to have freedom of religion. And he's trying to unite um, Islam and uh, Christian uh, beliefs and allow those to be harmonious with each other in Egypt. And you can see that they they do have. I love that you say it's a, it is a holy land. They they do have a lot of power, a lot of intelligence, a lot of of goodness. I mean, Egypt was an incredible powerhouse. It's a place that Abraham goes back to. It's a place that now Joseph and these others go back to. And I think it is important not to just write it off, but to recognize that it, it was a blessed and and wonderful place. And and hopefully it will continue to. Uh, continue on a path where it's restored and made part of the glorious earth as well as, as we get closer to Christ's return. So yeah. I love that you say that. <clears throat> um, so as we, as we're now interacting with these, because um, the reason I find that interesting, by the way, is because of the tensions between Isaac and Ishmael, right? Mm -hmm. It's another parallel of this story where we're trying to reunite the brothers and trying to bring families back together. So Joseph ends up now, um, putting the money, having the servants put the money back in the sacks. And he tells his servant to stick his silver cup in the sack of Benjamin with Benjamin's belongings. And then Joseph sends his servants after his brothers, um, after they leave and accuses them of theft. And they're like, whoa, whoa, why, why would you accuse us of theft? We brought back double the money. We've been honest with you this whole time. We told you the truth about our brother. We told you the truth about this, this, uh, the prior, um, you know, you gave us too much. If, if anybody has your silver cup, they will become your bond servant. They'll become your slave. And Joseph says, okay, by your word, that's what will happen. And so they search all the bags and they find the silver cup with Benjamin. And they're, the brothers are just absolutely crushed, right? Like they're, they're just absolutely devastated. And it's, it's so sad to see that tension. But I also see that Joseph is, he's basically trying to help them see that he's, he's going to forgive them. But, you know, he's basically saying, hey, these debts that we think we have against each other, a lot of them are made up. Let's just come back together and love each other. And so the brothers throw themselves up on the mercy of Joseph. And <clears throat> Judah then divulges the story of how Jacob, their father, lost his most loved son, Joseph. And he offers to take Benjamin's place. So true to his word, he offers himself as a surety. And so 
that willingness for Judah to step in and say, no, I will, I will take this is it's one of the reasons I think why Judah and all of his posterity are so not only blessed with the ability to be who they are, but they have this beautiful relationship with Ephraim going forward. Judah and, and, and uh, Joseph's posterities love each other and, and they, they, want to, they want to work in concert with each other. And so we have this, this exchange and then uh, Judah basically tries to make an atonement. And as we go forward, we'll be able to see this, this interplay. You know, it's interesting. One of my, um, I'm from Ephraim. One of my dearest friends is, um, that I've worked with over the years as a, as a fellow executive at Switch um, is Jewish. And there's many blessings and promises about how Ephraim and Judah will work together to bring about the restoration of the earth. And I, I have a personal testimony that Judah and their heritage and the blessings and gifts they offer are necessary for Ephraim to be able to be Ephraim. We, we need each other. Absolutely. In fact, I'll share that I'm writing a book right now called Judah and Joseph Reunited, The Hope mm. for Israel, about how the two tribes are both given leadership blessings. We're going to discuss that later in this, in this uh, chapter today. But, um, but yes, they have to work together. And, and that close relationship, in my opinion, first starts here. And, um, and, and it is really sort of echoing throughout the ages in terms of that first misunderstanding between one another and then that um, sacrifice and then the reunification there between Judah and Joseph is being echoed throughout the ages and the Lord tells us it's absolutely necessary for the for the end of time so I don't know why um, I'm also a tribe of Ephraim but I have to tell you that I've had a love for the Jewish people and for Judah since I was a child, literally as a child. And in fact, to the point where I had DNA done because I was certain, I was positive that I, I had to be Jewish as well because I just have such a love for the people. So, yeah. I love that. I love that. <laughs> you know, one, one of my daughter's best friends is Jewish. She just got invited to the, her bat mitzvah. And I agree, like we, we, we know each other. <laughs> we do celebrate, you know, we, our hearts celebrate each other when we're close and when we work together. And later on in the Old Testament, you see the tension arise again between Judah and Ephraim and they yeah. betray each other and the people actually war with each other. And that's where you get the northern and the southern yeah. tribes. And Ephraim's the reason the 10 tribes are taken away. And that's right. <laughs> yeah, that reunion's coming. Yes. And I'm, I'm hoping it's, I'm hoping it's sooner than later. Um, I have some things, maybe if we have enough time at the end, I can share about that. So about a wonderful okay. group I know of. But anyway, go ahead about this incredible yeah. story with Joseph. So Joseph ends up revealing himself. This is revealing himself in Genesis 45, verses 1 through 28. He reveals himself to his brothers. And he asks all the members of the court, except for his brothers, to leave. And then he weeps. Uh, it's interesting. The scriptures say he weeps so loudly and and rejoices so much over the reunion and the, and the revelation that it's this feral court heard him. <laughs> There's something about just the exuberance of his soul reuniting with them. And it's interesting because at first his brothers don't understand, and they don't they don't really perceive him as as their brother. But he start he says, "No, look at my eyes. Look at my lips. Like see that I am." He's like, "Look at my face, and I am your brother. I am Benjamin's brother. Compare him to me." I'm the one that you sold into Egypt and don't count it as evil. Know that God did this so that we can be saved. Know that God is working in all of this. And so 
he just again brings it back to Christ is working his miracles. He's turning adversity into blessing, you know, affliction into bread and water, like it talks about in Isaiah. And so that's in verse 45, uh, verse five. And he said, and then in verse uh, seven through eight, he says, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. I love that idea of great deliverance. I personally believe that we knew what we were getting into when we came down to earth and we, we framed up the experiences with God that we wanted to have, the lessons we wanted to learn. And it's almost like we were able to wrap our Christmas presents with him before we came to earth. And then the veil and the forgetfulness and being born and being tested means that we don't remember, but then we open them up the presents up with Christ and we're like, oh yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. It's the coolest experience ever. It's like this, this, this exercise of trust of, of agreeing to be worked upon having our souls and our hearts stretched by him and so that we can receive more from him i feel like that great deliverance is what happens here and that that reunion is beautiful and powerful and joseph falls on his brothers and weeps with them in verse 15 just like it talks about in moses 7 so there's this reunion this beautiful connection and pharaoh it says is pleased for Joseph and all of his family and invites them all to come and sends wagons. And there's this great rejoicing, this great reunion. And I, I love what you said about how at this time, they're probably believing in the true God as Egypt. Of course, Pharaoh would say that. Of course he would say, bring Abraham's children over here. Let's all rejoice together. Let's all be reunited together. And, you know, I, I shared in the last week uh, podcast about how the sense that Joseph being sent ahead that now he has this vision that he recognizes that God has sent him ahead to save Israel. But at the time that he's in prison and at the time that he's sold to Potiphar and having all of those challenges, um, you know, how did he maintain at that time? How did he maintain the softness of heart and his willingness to let God prevail in his life? And I made the connection to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who all had that same experience of being sent ahead. You know, they were amongst the first captives of, uh, taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, and uh, they never got to see home again. And in fact, Joseph doesn't see home again either. And um, they're sent ahead, but instead of being bitter and ugly or turning away from God or forgetting their covenants, they literally show forth all of this sense of stewardship and ministry, the promise that the covenant is supposed to be giving through the priesthood of ministering to others, that Joseph shows that in prison. So he, he's made the, the head, the head steward of all the prison. He shows that in Potiphar's house and he's made the head of Potiphar's house. He shows that in Egypt and has made the head next to Pharaoh. And the same with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that through their stewardship, the countries that they're taken and our prisoners in uh, flourish because of the blessings God puts on them. But I wonder how well we do today when we're in really painful circumstances and specifically circumstances that seem different than what we were promised, say in a patriarchal blessing or, or something. You know, um, Joseph was told he's gonna be the birthright son, which presents a picture of a future that was very different in its fulfillment than any of them would have imagined. And so sometimes we get a patriarchal blessing that promises a certain thing. And then years go by, we think it's not happening and we, we harden our heart against God. And we think, oh no, this patriarch wasn't inspired. Uh, these things aren't true. 
um, and, and we turn away rather than kind of following this example of Joseph and Daniel of this is really hard, but maybe this is part of my ministry. Maybe this is part of my mission and I'm going to retain my faith. I'm going to stay with my covenants and I'm going to trust in God. Even the point of the promised land that we're talking about now that Jacob and his family had to leave because of the famine and Abraham had to leave earlier because of the famine. And yet this is supposed to be this land flowing with milk and honey and, and abundance. And, right. um, and so uh, in Hebrews 11, it says that, in fact, these patriarchs dwelt in the promised land in tents and as if they were strangers in that land because it had not yet reached its, its full potential. And it says, but they still, even upon their death, they had not seen all those promises fulfilled. This is Hebrews 11, 11. It says, but they embraced them. They saw them afar off and they embraced them as if they had been fulfilled. And I think that's so important for us for a perspective. You know, it's like um, Elder Maxwell always said, our mortal life is like a day at school. It may be a hard day, but it's a, it's a day at school compared to our eternal life and keeping that that perspective in that ministry. And it just amazes me that both Daniel and Joseph, probably teens when they're sold into slavery in, in foreign lands, could maintain that vision. It's, it's I, well, really I, remarkable. It is. I love it. And, I, and to, your, to your question about how do you keep your heart soft on that, I, you know, President Nelson has been talking a lot about the importance of gratitude. And I, I think on um, the verses in the Doctrine of Covenants, because Joseph Smith himself has many difficulties and deals with so much sorrow and, and loss. And, but the Lord assures him, he says, hey, if you receive all things with thankfulness, you will be made glorious and the things of this earth will be added unto you even a hundredfold, yea more, like a hundred times and then even more on top. <laughs> it's like, he's basically saying, just trust me that everything is a gift. Everything is an invitation to come closer to Christ. Everything is an opportunity for you to keep receiving from me I mean, if you can just keep your heart in that place where it's receptive i will turn every difficulty into a blessing every sorrow into rejoicing and that joseph does that here he he, he ends up becoming you know the, the king of the world in many respects because he's able to just continue to receive from the lord i love well, that and again foreshadowing the savior in that specifically says i was sent here ahead of time by your betrayal so that i could save you yeah. And, and so much like the savior who has sent, you know, that Adam and Eve were able to partake of the atonement, even though the savior had not performed his um, atonement yet, yeah. because we knew, we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he would, that he would do what he had said, but he had been sent before symbolically. Um, he has been sent before us by those who would betray him in order to save us. Yes. And then takes that adversity, turns it into bread mm -hmm. and then doesn't keep the bread for himself, but shares the bread with everyone else. Yeah. To me, that's that it, it's it's the embodiment or the the it's the the perfect example of what Christ is trying to teach each of us to do. He's he's saying, look, I'll help you, I'll help you be like me, the, the I am, where your circumstances don't change you. Instead, you change your circumstances. And it's it's not because you're awesome and you just kind of deal with stuff and you can walk on water and you're cool. No, it's because what you're doing is you're looking to me and loving me. And then when I start to bless you, you turn around and you immediately want to share that blessing with your brothers and sisters okay. and point them to me as well. That, that is, it, it's this, all of us have these opportunities 
probably many times throughout the week, if not every day, where we, we're faced with a difficulty and we get that choice. Are we going to view it as a gift that we can draw us and others to God? Or are we going to view it as a cursing and make us upset? And, you know, my, my wife has this <coughs> quote, and I don't know who wrote this, but they say, every experience is a choice between a grievance and a miracle. And I, I surrender all grievances. I choose the miracle. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what Joseph does over and over again. He's like, no, this is God. He's here. He's in this. And I'm going to just trust that he's going to work it for my glory and for my good. Mm, I love it. Love it. So <clears throat> those parallels that you talk about between Joseph and Jesus and those similarities where Joseph goes first, he's the birthright son. Jesus goes first. He's the birthright son and a stewardship. They each have a stewardship for the salvation of their family. Jacob is called ahead to go. And then actually in uh, Genesis 37, 13, he says, I'll go here am I. And then we know that Christ in Abraham 3.27 in the discussion with the father up in the premortal world says, here am I, send me for the plan of salvation. And I, you, you have a, you've prepared an awesome chart on this. I hope you share it <laughs> because this, these parallels between Joseph and Jesus, I hopefully we can throw up on the screen here, are, are very insightful. They help us see that the Lord is not only helping Joseph be an example of Jesus, but I think the Lord is trying to help all of us be more like Jesus in this respect too. There are different ways where we can do that as well. Joseph loses his coat. It's stripped from him. Jesus had his, his raiment stripped from him, his garment stripped from him as well. Joseph's brothers covered his coat in blood. Jesus' garment was covered in blood, you know, as a sacrificial lamb. He's sold by his brother Judah. And Jesus, Joseph is sold by his brother Judah. Jesus is sold by Judas. And uh, Joseph began his ministry at 33 years old, and, or excuse me, 30 years old. And Jesus began his public ministry at 30 years old. And lastly, everyone from all countries came to Joseph for bread. That's in Genesis 41, 5 through 57. And similarly, Christ is the bread of life, the source of living water. He's, he's the nourishment for all of us. So these parallels help us see that what's really happening in the story is Christ is saying, I am here with you. Just like Joseph was there for you before, I'm now here with you. I'm going to help bring about the salvation and bring redemption and nourishment and satisfaction to your soul. It's beautiful. I love it. And I especially love, as you pointed out earlier, that Joseph does all of that in the name of God. In other words, he's not saying, I'm doing all this because I'm so good. Um, yeah. and, and it reminds me how we're instructed that everything that we do is supposed to be in the name of Jesus Christ. And, yes. and then also that other part, don't take his name in vain. In other words, don't speak things in his name that he wouldn't say, but also that we are ministers, that we ought to be like Joseph, that we ought to be bringing others to Jesus by pointing the way to Jesus and, and behaving like Jesus. And again, not taking credit for it. And I always think of this specifically uh, as we go forth in as um, ministering brothers and sisters, is that that close friendship is super important, but we also need to remember that we're there as um, stewards in the name of Jesus Christ, and that we need to be looking at people as he would look at them and serve as he would serve and, and give all credit to him. I love that. Amen to that. <laughs> so Joseph ends up bringing all the Israelites, they all settle in Goshen in chapter 46. And the Lord um, meets Jacob and assures him to go to Egypt. The Lord says, no, this is where you're supposed to go. This is part of it. And, and this is all in fulfillment of the prophecy that um, Abraham received back in Genesis 15, when Abraham is instructed by the Lord to sacrifice those animals, cut them asunder, 
and swap places with the Lord in an at one moment, the Lord promises him and says, your children are going to end up in Egypt. They're going to be, uh, they're going to have blessings there, but then they're going to be in bondage for many generations, but I will save them. I will deliver them. I will redeem them. So this is, this is again, that idea that all these things were planned beforehand. All these things are designed to help us receive more from the Lord. Yeah, I love it. It's so beautiful to see in all of these stories in the Old Testament, you know, so many people tell me they don't like the Old Testament because they feel like God's always angry. But the truth is, is when I'm reading the Old Testament, what I see is his incredible mercy and love and, and how he is always trying to prepare. And, and in fact, even in Isaiah, he says, have you not known? Have I not told you from the beginning? And, you know, he has from the beginning continually said, here's what's going to happen. Just like he told Abraham hundreds of years before the, um, the children of Israel are brought back out um, that he, he tells them. And so I often wonder, you know, when Moses showed up, I often wondered how many Israelites were still remembering that prophecy. And the truth is we don't know, you know, um, Daniel really clung to Jeremiah's prophecy that they would be in Babylon for 70 years. And as they're approaching 70 years, he reminds all the Israelites of that. He, he fasts and prays and says, can this prophecy be fulfilled about the 70 years? Well, 400 years in Egypt is quite a bit more than 70, but I can't help but wonder, you know, were there people that were saying, oh, but we, you know, the Lord told Abraham this and we, we should have hope and, and, you know, maybe welcome Moses with uh, open arms. So it's interesting because we don't know the answer, but you're right. You're right. But in parallel to that too, I mean, how long has it been since the revolution and the declaration of independence here in America, right? Like 400 years is a long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a very long time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so you look at it and go, wow. Yeah. Would they remember? And the number four is interesting too, because I've always viewed the, the number four as, uh, as a symbol of earth. And what the yeah. Lord is saying is you're going to, this is the earth experience. You're here this long, these 40 years, 400 years. It's this is what this is about until you let me come in and redeem you and, and bring you out of it. So, well, I if you want to go on the number thing, because I love that too. If you want to go on the number thing, it's 40 times 10 and 10 yeah. represents a well-organized kingdom. And so oh. when they come out of uh, Egypt, they go to Sinai where the Lord tells them, I'm going to make you a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. So yeah, I, I love all the number stuff too. And it's just really awesome because for me, all those details just keep telling me the Lord is in charge. The Lord Amen. is in charge. Amen. I love that. <laughs> all right. So uh, I, what's next? Are we on to? Yeah. So, so I do want to just highlight for a minute, the sense of you know, this fighting that we've been talking about over the year, over the uh, years in the Old Testament first stories about priesthood and birthright and who gets that. And I do want to point out um, for both Jacob and Joseph, both who left their homes empty handed, right? They didn't have any of their father's inheritance when they left, but God had chosen them to be the birthright priesthood stewardship son and here we see at the end of their years that both of them have received all the blessings of the birthright priesthood stewardship um, and I've been talking quite a bit about what that meant that that meant that the yes he was supposed to get a double portion but it meant specifically he was supposed to use that extra inheritance to bless all the members of the family that he had a sacred commission to look out for all of the members of the family and not only their needs, but like the law of consecration tells us, their wants. 
And so even though brothers were unhappy with Jacob and with Joseph and they left empty handed, indeed, in the end, they have this abundance, which they are sharing with their families. And I think it's really important for us to see that. Um, is responsibility. that it's a, it was his responsibility to bring blessing and bounty to all of them. Yeah, yeah, I love it. So speaking about responsibilities and birthright blessings, uh, Jacob lives for 17 years in Egypt. I can only imagine, as you say, what that reunion was like between the father and the son. Uh, and um, and it's towards the end of his life, and he wants to give blessings to all of his uh, children. And this is the first time that I think we see specifically what we might call a patriarchal blessing um, in the scriptures. Before that, we certainly see blessings for passing on the birthright or the priesthood. Um, but in this specific case, we see patriarchal blessings given by Father Israel, who is Jacob, to all of his sons. And um, here's where also people start getting confused as to how many number of tribes we have in Israel. So we know that Jacob had 12 sons. And um, before the end of his life, Jacob calls all of his sons to him, including Joseph. And in fact, he does bless Joseph. But Joseph has a little meeting with Jacob with his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who have been born to him in Egypt by Asenath. And um, and Jacob has a private meeting with them where he's going to give them blessings. And here we go again with the birthright and firstborn and so on, because the firstborn son is Manasseh. And the second, the youngest is Ephraim. And Jacob, who had the same experience himself with Esau, he now, Jacob, yep, changes his hands so that his right hand is on Ephraim's head. And Joseph, Oh, isn't it just so interesting yeah. when they themselves have been sort of the focus of this upset that they they also get upset because uh, Joseph, no father, no father. Um, Manasseh is the firstborn and um, and Jacob says, no, this is the way it's to be. And um, he blesses Ephraim with the birthright blessings, which, as you mentioned, and we're going to talk about uh, in more depth, actually ends up causing a lot of confusion in Israel. But it still causes confusion for us today because, again, okay, let's add we have 12 sons. Now we have Ephraim and we have Manasseh. How many tribes are there? And so I think it's really important for us to understand that Moses and uh, Jacob here and Joshua, when he's giving the land assignments, always refer to Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh as one tribe. So we will see in the scriptures constantly interchanging the names of Joseph and Ephraim. And in fact, once we're specifically, and especially once we are, um, let's say we're starting in, uh, in Joshua, from Joshua on, and especially in Isaiah and Jeremiah and such, more, most often that tribe is going to be referred to by Ephraim's name. And as you mentioned, even when the kingdoms divided an upcoming lesson, uh, the northern kingdoms referred to as Ephraim, not Joseph. But so just again to clarify, those three are referred to as one. Ephraim is, the, is given the birthright blessing. And in fact, when they're given their land assignment, Ephraim and Manasseh are given the instruction that they're to share the land as one under Joseph. And interestingly enough, Manasseh is split into two portions for the land. We'll talk about that as we go. Now, there's a chart that I will try to put up. I'll try to put up both of those charts, a really in-depth chart of each of the sun's blessings, what their symbols are, what their names are. Uh, I love names. this chart. You've shared it with me and I love it because I think there's so much focus on Ephraim and Judah. Mm -hmm. And it's critical for us to remember 
that there are so many blessings and we, we need all of the blessings. It, just like Joseph needed to be able to bring his brothers back and reunite together. All those blessings have to work in orchestration together for us to restore the earth. I agree. Um, the more I have studied about the different tribes, and I and again, it is an enormous chart, it has their land assignment and, and everything, but the more I've studied, the more I have felt this weight of testimony that there is no such thing as a throwaway tribe. There's no such thing as an unimportant tribe. Um, that every single one of these tribes is precious unto the Lord, and every single tribe is represented by each of these sons. Um, has an important mission and work to do. And in fact, that's really illustrated by John's revelation of this celestial city, because on yeah. each, each gate, there's 12 gates of the celestial city, and on each gate of the celestial city, there is a name of one of the tribes. Um, yes. Every single one is essential. Now, it looks like you have something you want to share. No, I love that. You know, it's, so for my book on about Zion Rising, I actually have a symbol of three squares interlocking and each one of those corners is, um, is, is in my brain is one of the gates to the celestial city. In the Dead Sea Scrolls that actually talks about, there's a Dead Sea Scroll book called The Vision of the Archangel Michael, where he's taken up above and he sees that city, but he describes it as 13 mountain peaks because there's a, there's a center mountain peak and there's 12 around the outside and that that is a city that's above the earth. <clears throat> and so there's this idea that it's almost like Zion, as we reunite these tribes, as we bring everyone back together, because there is no throwaway tribe. Every single one's critical. Every person is precious. All the gifts are necessary to make Zion, you know, make it make it possible for Zion to rise. It's almost like this Zion becomes this, this flower that's opening up and budding up into the heavens. And each one of those petals is necessary. Each one of those tribes or those gates into the city is necessary for it to be able to bloom and rise. And I served my mission in um, Romania and Moldova, and I absolutely loved it. The people there are wonderful. And um, you can see, in, in my experience, just like um, Sister Nelson was talking about how she's had these experiences where in that Eastern European bloc, she's found uh, members from every tribe of Israel. And she, it's, I love her because she's like, I wasn't really supposed to ask this, but I asked everybody to raise their hand what tribe they're from. When I was there, we actually, uh, the members had to go to a different location to get their patriarch blessings because we didn't have a state patriarch then. We didn't have stakes in Romania yet. And we actually, as we interacted with people, we found that we, we found tribes, uh, members from every tribe, but they would come back. Elder Ballard, when he set apart Romania, he said it was rich in the blood of Israel when he set apart that mission. And so I feel like we're, we are gathering those people back. We're, we're gathering our brothers and sisters back. And in order for us to be able to build that city that you see with John the Revelator and also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we, we need those gifts to come together and orchestrate together. So I, I love it. I love that you bring that up. Well, and also, you know, like even again, John, who has this revelation of everything at the end, um, when he talks about the 144,000, which some people take as literally 144,000 saved, but it is again, numbers, 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 um, yeah. a symbolic rep representation of an infinity from each of the 12 tribes. Yeah. And it's really important for us to understand that Israel is the name of God's covenant family and everyone is invited to join into that family. Doesn't matter what the DNA is it doesn't matter if we're a direct descendant of, of Abraham or of one of the tribes, and that when we do um, accept the fullness of the gospel, we are adopted. And so as we receive patriarchal blessings today, um, we, hear, we hear stories of families that within a family, they will have children with 
maybe three different tribal assignments. And that's why I love studying about the tribes and their missions, because again, it's just so emphasized that everyone is so essential. Everyone has their mission. And that's represented also when they um, do divide the land of Israel, is that the land of Israel, every single tribe receives an inheritance. And there's a terrible story about when, um, when the brothers are, the tribes are fighting one another and they realize they almost decimate one of the tribes. They're like, no, we can't do this. You know, we've got to, we've got to restore this tribe because we, we have to have everyone here. And again, that's all symbolized by this beautiful story with Joseph um, and his role of bringing Israel and even the fact that you can't come without Benjamin. In other words, every single brother, every single tribe has to be there uh, in this sort of glorious reunion. Um, I love it. So um, in any case, thank, go ahead. thank you for doing the work on that. Your chart is awesome. <laughs> well, I love it. I don't know why I'm just so fascinated with it, but it just makes me feel so much about how God is so inclusive and um, how much he does love us and how we, each of us has that inheritance with him. Yeah. And that's really, isn't that what it's really about? Israel is having this sacred inheritance with the Lord and the yeah. fullness of the covenant blessings, including the priesthood and eternal families. And he wants yeah. all of us. He wants all of us to have that. This is about a family, you know, that every single story that we're reading is about a family and it's our family. And I think that's, what's really important which sort of leads to um, Joseph's blessing that is also then passed on to Ephraim and Manasseh. And um, if we can, I'd like to highlight a little bit of um, Joseph's blessing, Ephraim and also Judah, but I will put up the chart for all of the other tribes with that specific remembrance. Everyone is so important. And the reason why I'm highlighting this is because Joseph has given this blessing that in essence, his tribe still has that same responsibility that he had which is to go before, to be a branch broken off. Uh, Jacob prophesies that Joseph is like a fruitful bow uh, or a bow. People tease me the way I say that. Uh, a branch that goes over a wall. And we have to think that there are several branches, right? We know of one. I'm going to invite you to talk about that one. But um, that Joseph is blessed with the abundance of all the all of the goodness of the earth, of the waters below, of the abundance of crops, but also the abundance of posterity, so much that he will have branches that go over the wall, meaning out of the land of their inheritance, and that those branches will have a very important responsibility. And this is in, um, this is in uh, the Joseph Smith translation of uh, Genesis 49 and 50, uh, Joseph Smith translation of 49 and 50, that um, it's not only Jacob's blessing to Joseph, but it's also Joseph's prophecy about his own posterity that would go forward, building on Jacob's promise about these branches and what the responsibilities were, specifically the responsibility that Joseph's family through Ephraim and Manasseh would have the responsibility of remembering the covenants and bringing the knowledge of the covenants to all of the rest of the family of Israel. Now that just gives me the chills every time I read it, because again, just like Joseph's food had literally saved Israel alive. And you made that analogy that that's like Jesus being the bread of life and the water of life. Well, so now again, Joseph's posterity specifically has this mission of covenant food, if you will, again, the bread of the bread of life and the waters of life to share that 
and bring start to bring Israel back together again. I know you have something to share about that, Sam. Just bringing that nourishment, you know, it, it, and a lot of that prophecy has been fulfilled. And I know you're going to get into this too with Joseph Smith. How um, obviously the, the Native American tribes that were that are descendants from the, the house of Israel, we know that they, that's been revealed to us. And it's it's the beautiful story of the Book of Mormon is that they are the children of Israel, that they're from Ephraim and Manasseh, and they're that fruitful bow that was brought over the wall or over the ocean and came to the promised land and, and was able, they were able to bring about many miracles and they had their own personal experience with Christ when he visits them and ministers to them after he's been uh, uh, resurrected. That exercise is beautiful. Um, there's also a deeper level even beyond that or an extension of that blessing throughout uh, the history beyond that where Joseph Smith later says, no man knows my history and we don't understand how he fits into the, to the tree of Israel, but God is obviously a master gardener and he's working about this miracle. He's, I like to think he's a, that gardener idea is he's a master geneticist, like he's working these family trees and weaving the branches together in a way to bring about the salvation of as much fruit as possible. And so Joseph Smith has also these lineal ties, these uh, uh, ancestral ties to Joseph in Egypt and also connections to Christ himself somehow intertwined. There's there's a there's some some type of uh, connection between them that's beautiful, and we're learning more and more as right. we go closer to him. And let, let's talk about that for a minute because first I want to point out that when um, Nephi went back to get the plates, Nephi and his brothers went back back to get the plates, and Lehi's reading through the plates. One of the very first things they exclaim, "We're from Joseph!" Yeah, and great are the blessings for Joseph. And Joseph saw us. So we have this beautiful, you know, when I said earlier, do you think the people in Egypt remember the prophecy given to Abraham? Well, here, right away in the Book of Mormon uh, with Lehi's family, we see that they do recognize and remember the prophecies concerning Joseph's seed. And they, and they from the beginning, are teaching their, their people, we're from Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And we have this responsibility of preserving the covenants and we also um, have this responsibility of doing everything we can for the whole rest of Israel. And so that the book that they're writing, the sacred record that they are keeping, was prophesied of by Joseph of Egypt in Joseph Smith translation, um, Genesis 50, that Joseph of Egypt saw, first of all, two seers. So he reaffirmed um, Abraham's, uh, Abraham's prophecy about a person who would be sent to bring the people out of Egypt and that that would be Moses. But he saw a second seer in the latter days. And he says that seer will be named after his father and both his father and that seer will be named Joseph, just like him, just like yep. him. Yep. And so tell us about that. Cause you started on, a, on that to some degree. No, no, keep going. I think you're hitting it perfectly because that, it's beautiful. It, it, it's just Christ is weaving all the branches together. So after yes. you, please. <laughs> and again, the important mission of this seer, who is Joseph Smith, the son of Joseph Smith, senior, that the important mission of this seer was the same role as Joseph of Egypt, to be yes. sent ahead to provide um, salvation through this food of the gospel, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ to all of the rest of Israel. And, you know, I love, love, love the um, title page of the Book of Mormon, because first of all, I always say, I always tell this to my classes, 
I would challenge you to write a title page for the Book of Mormon and have it be in two paragraphs, have it be as short as it is and so succinct because I could never do it. But specifically that that the purpose of the Book of Mormon is to um, tell the people, the children of the house of Israel, what great things the Lord has done for their fathers and also that they are not cast off forever. So again, it's all about the reunion of Israel and also to remind them of the covenants of the Lord, the new and everlasting covenant, and that all might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. I mean, it's just so powerful for me. In fact, I, I'm a convert to the church. I joined the church when I was 17. And I have to tell you, I started reading the Bible when I was nine. And um, I had a really strong conversion experience with a Billy Graham crusade uh, when I was eight. And, um, and it was two weeks before I turned nine. So started reading the Bible with that and just loved the Old Testament, loved it, a totally different experience than so many describe. And it was because of the Old Testament, specifically about prophets, about priesthood, about temples, that I, and Isaiah, the whole entire book of Isaiah, that I went looking for a church. And, um, and I was looking for a church that would have all of those things, that would have a prophet, someone that God was speaking to face-to-face, that would have the priesthood. And by that time, I'd read the entire Bible and the New Testament in Hebrews tells, Paul tells us we have to have the Melchizedek priesthood. And, and then um, looking also for temples because Isaiah prophesies that in the last days, sons and daughters from all tribes would be invited to come into the temple. And, um, and I was specifically looking for those. And then the organization of the church as was seen in the New Testament under Christ. And so um, that's what led me to the church. And then I read the Book of Mormon and specifically the title page. And it's just like, yes, yes, this is, this is it. This is all coming home. It was just so exciting for me. Powerful. And, it, and it's all orchestrated to be able to bring about the God, God's glory and bring about his, his work and his wonder. I, I love the, the effort he's put into weaving us and our hearts back together and helping us rejoice when we're finally able to see as we are seen and know as we are known. Just like what you brought up with, with Nephi, how they, were, they, they celebrated, they, they were able to confirm that they were from the house of Ephraim. Us remembering our family history, remembering our heritage, you know, and on patriarchal blessing, it's interesting. We asked our state patriarch, he's, um, he's been our state patriarch here in Las Vegas for a couple of years now. And we asked him, we we're like, what's, what's some advice you'd give? And he said, get your patriarchal blessing as soon as you possibly can. Yeah. You know, his, historically, they used to say, oh, wait till you're 20 or 18 or 60. He's like, nope, get it as soon as you possibly can, because knowing who you are and knowing your family history and, and you're tied into Abraham and into, and into Israel, it provides an anchor to help you actually become who you're meant to become. I couldn't agree more. In fact, I've taught seminary for nine years, and it's something I always really emphasize to my mm-hmm. seminary students. It's like, especially that the, the high school years are by far the most trying years for our young people. And, and the only way to, for me, I believe, to overcome that is to know who they are eternally. 
The yes. only way to withstand the temptations is to know who they are eternally. So I always really encourage them on the patriarchal blessings. Now, I know our time is drawing really short. And speaking of patriarchal blessings, I do want to just touch on a couple of things. So we've talked about Joseph, but Judah was also given a great leadership blessing and both of these tribes were. So Judah was promised that the kings of Israel would come through him and would come and stay through him until the Messiah came and that the Messiah called Shiloh in his blessing uh, would come through Judah's line. And uh, of course, we've seen that fulfilled in that Jesus Christ, the Messiah is from the tribe of Judah. But these strong blessings to both Judah and Joseph have caused a lot of people um, to be confused about when are they supposed to have that leadership role? Because really at the beginning, it was Judah at the beginning. And then towards the end, it's Joseph, but most important to be joined together. But I did wanna share a writing from a Jewish rabbi um, that represents a lot of teaching that is um, easy to find amongst the, um, the Jewish people and the rabbinical uh, teachings that talk about that because of these two blessings for these two brothers, they have a belief that there are actually two messiahs, a messiah ben Judah, or the messiah son of Judah, or son of David, because later through Judah's line, we have King David who received a promise from the Lord that the Messiah would come from him. So David again is from house of Judah. So sometimes called Messiah ben Judah or Messiah ben David. We notice that in the scriptures, Jesus was referred to as the son of David, David kind of help yes. us to see that. Um, but also they're looking for a Messiah ben Joseph a Messiah, the son of Joseph. And I do want to just share this. This is written by Rabbi Emmanuel Shoket. He says, Jewish tradition speaks of two redeemers, each one called Messiah. Both are involved in ushering in the messianic era. They are Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph. The term Messiah unqualified always refers to Messiah ben David, meaning, and he's not saying this because remember he's Jewish, um, uh, Messiah, the descendant of David of the tribe of Judah. So we recognize that as Jesus Christ. He is the actual final redeemer who shall rule in the messianic age. All that was said in our text relates to him. Messiah ben Joseph of the tribe of Ephraim, son of Joseph, is also referred to as Messiah ben Ephraim. Messiah, the descendant of Ephraim, he will come first before the final redeemer and later will serve as his viceroy. Now listen to this. The essential task of Messiah ben Joseph is to act as precursor to Messiah ben David. He will prepare the world for the coming of the final redeemer. Different sources attribute to him different functions, some even charging him with tasks traditionally associated with Messiah ben David, such as the ingathering of the exiles, the rebuilding of the Bet Hamikdash or the temple, and so forth. And so again, this is written by a Jewish rabbi, and he's saying, here's the role. There's only one Messiah ben David. He's the redeemer. He's the one that's going to rule forever. And then there's a Messiah ben Joseph. He's going to prepare the way by beginning the ingathering and also building a temple. What do you think, he, Sam? He's been referred to as the restorer as well. There's also some prophecies and Jewish traditions from this time where there's there's the deliverer, Moses. There's the Messiah or the, the the Redeemer Christ, and then there's the Restorer Joseph Smith, and that that idea that God would work the families together to bring about the salvation is beautiful. 
And it's actually how Christ has always promised to work. There's always someone who comes as a messenger beforehand to announce the coming of the bridegroom. There's always an Elias, which is a title that's given to like John the Baptist or these other prophets who prepare the way for the Lord. And it's wonderful that we have an opportunity to live at a time where I, I believe that's happening. I believe it is too. We're preparing. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe that began with Joseph Smith. So I, one other thing I found in my studies that I'm also going to share in a, in a book is that I one day I was looking at what was happening in the year 1830 amongst the Jewish people, um, mm -hmm. meaning this is, the, this is when the church was restored. Yep. And I came across this, I mean, it, I still can't believe I found it. I think it was just purely the Lord leading me to it because it's in a remote library. But there was a group of lab, uh, group of rabbis in 1830 that came down from Eastern Europe and went back to Israel. And in the, as they went through their ancient records and were reading all of the rabbinical prophecies as well as the scriptures, they determined that there was someone amongst the tribe of Joseph, specifically Ephraim, that as they wrote, had the authority, had the authority to build a temple and to bring them back together and to gather them. So they wrote a letter. And, and by the way, the, the man who drafted the letter was called Rabbi Israel, which is also just kind of, you know, I, the, there's no accidents here, right? Beautiful. And so yeah. he, in 1830, he drafted a letter signed by all of these other rabbis as well. And they took this, they sent a messenger to go through all of the then existing sort of governments of um, Europe, because they remembered that the tribes of Ephraim specifically, but the 10 tribes had been carried away to the north, just like your experience in Romania. So they sent messengers with this letter to all of the governments in those Eastern European countries and um, to say, here, we're looking for you, please, please. We're looking for someone from the tribe of Joseph, specifically an Ephraimite who has authority. We're looking for you, please come and help us and gather us together. And um, unfortunately, that messenger was killed after a couple of years. And Rabbi Israel and his people never knew that God had heard their plea. And here in that same year, 1830, we have Joseph Smith, this Messiah Ben Joseph, who is from the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, uh, Brigham Young tells us he was a pure Ephraimite. And he is answering that call in that yearning. And this is why I think you know, those of us who love the scriptures and love the tribes of Israel, we recognize this important and urgent. In fact, uh, President Nelson tells us it's the most important work we can engage in on either side of the veil, the gathering back together of the family of Israel. And I don't think it's an accident that Moses in Deuteronomy 33 prophesied that Ephraim and Manasseh with their horns, now their sign is the ox. There was the sign for both, both Ephraim and Manasseh is the ox, that they were to push together the people of the earth. And so we have uh, uh, 12 oxen in every temple font, 12 oxen facing all of the directions with the sign of Ephraim and Manasseh in fulfillment of, of Moses's prophecy to go to all throughout all of the earth to find our brothers and bring them back together again. Both sides of the veil gathering that together on both sides of the vessel angels and above and angels below can work together to bring about the restoration i love it including the help of zion sam yes amen <laughs> joseph, joseph smith translation again of um of genesis 9 tells us that zion is there waiting to help us 
if we remember them and and yes. build Zion here, they will help us with that work. Yeah, You're lifting our hearts to heaven as they as they extend their hearts down to us, right? Yeah. Reconnecting heaven and earth. I love it. I love that. What a fun discussion this has been. It's been so yes. delightful. So I'm delightful. not sure how long it's been, but I've had a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Sam, for this great experience and for all that you have to share and offer. Again, Sam's book is Zion Rising. Uh, that's coming out in May, right? Right, Sam? Yeah, I'm excited. That's great. <laughs> and I know that yours, yours has already been published. Mine was released two weeks ago. I'm very excited. The Redemption of the Bride, God's Redeeming Love for His Covenant People. I'm, so I'm ordering a copy today. I'm thank so excited you. to read it. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe below. The beautiful allegory of the redemption of the bride tells the story of the house of Israel, her covenant betrothal to Jehovah, her adulterous apostasy from that covenant, and her restoration through his tender mercies and compassion upon her. The title bride applies to both men and women. It is used to denote a special covenant relationship between the individual and God. Israel is an all-inclusive name to indicate God's covenant family, to which all people are invited to belong. Salvation and redemption is an individual affair. Although it is tempting to identify Israel as a nation of people, the scriptural use of the story of the bride as a singular person invites us to explore our own particular relationship with the Lord. The story of Jehovah and his bride is a promise of hope to every individual who fears that they may have strayed too far from the Lord. Although, like the bride, we may have traveled a dark road, his atoning grace and mercy can heal and restore us to a newness of purity and hope. This is God's love story. It is also our story, each one of us. We are the bride of Christ, and he is waiting for us. Our redemption, should we choose it, is at hand. Find it at cedarfort.com.